Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, and welcome to my show, The Journey Map. And it really is my journey into the understanding of the nexus of macro crypto and the exponential age of technologies. These super forces are really the most exciting thing I've ever had in my career. And my career is a long one now. You can tell by my gray beard. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 34 years and I've been super lucky because in the 90s, when I was in the hedge funds industry on the sales side, so servicing hedge funds, I got to learn from the greatest traders in the world. You know, my daily phone calls were Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, um, and most of the biggest hedge funds, Julian Robertson at Tiger, you know, all of the staff at those places. That's why I got to know Dan Moorhead, Dan Tapiero, all of these people. And I would talk macro with them. I would also obviously execute trades and I'd see what they did right and what they did wrong. And for me, it was like being at the front row talking to Robert De Niro about acting or whatever great actor you want, Al Pacino, whoever it is. But I was there with these people every day and I would just absorb as much as possible and absorb people around me on the trading floor. And then I put it to my own practice when I was running a global macro hedge fund. So education and learning is a key part of the journey. The journeyman is really that. It's all about how you go on a journey of understanding. And what you think you know now, you realize how little you know later. And then eventually you kind of come to a point where you feel a bit wiser. That, that, that journey from information, when you get lots of information, you're trying to absorb it, you don't really know what to make sense of it. I think many people are at that point in their financial journey. It's like, I'm absorbing stuff, I'm watching podcasts, I'm doing this, but I don't fully get it yet. And that's okay. That's really, really normal. When I first was sat in a trading room and I had these screens in front of me and I'd hear people shouting around me, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. Luckily, I had one thing to anchor to is I was decent at technical analysis because I was training traders in technical analysis before I actually got into an investment bank. So I'd anchor on that so I could see what prices were moving and what it meant. But understanding all these moving prices and why buns mattered when we were trading the DAX and all of these kind of things, it's just difficult. It's difficult to understand the knock-on effects of one thing versus another. But over time, it comes clear. And that's by learning from others, questioning, and just building your skill set. You know, I was reading option textbooks in, in the evenings just to learn. I was, an, I was an option salesman, but I came in with no knowledge and I had to get up the knowledge curve fast. And I had to get up from that information. That first day in the trading room was all information and zero knowledge. And then take that information and turn it into knowledge. So knowledge was then my ability to then converse with the greats of the industry. I was now knowledgeable enough to earn my stripes that they would want to talk to me and I could add them value. 
I understood what was going on. Now, maybe not as well as them, obviously, but I could understand what was going on. And that was then the journey that led to my wisdom, which is, if there is such a thing in financial markets, is where you understand a lot more than you first thought that you understood. You kind of, you have to go through this curve of, I don't know anything. I think I know most things. Realizing, actually, I don't know anything. And then you get to the other side where you suddenly it all falls into place. And, you know, that was me running a global macro hedge fund. And then really the 20 years of writing research afterwards for Global Macro Investor. That's really where I learned to think, put all the dots together, think about what time horizon suited me, what was the best things for me. And those things are really what we actually do at Real Vision. That, that, that journey from information to knowledge to wisdom is the Real Vision journey. You come, you join as an essential member or a free member. You're there with all the, all the information you want. You've got AI, you've got charts, you've got watch lists, you've got note-taking abilities, you've got interviews, you've got written research. It's amazing. But you kind of don't know what to do with it yet. It feels overwhelming. But once you step up tiers and level up, you level up to knowledge, which is the second tier, tier two, which is the plus tier. That's when the Real Vision Academy is there which is a full education course. And we've got technical analysis taught to you by Tom DeMarc, Dave Floyd, Peter Brandt, the greats of the industry. We've got an amazing structured course that takes you through how to size positions, how to think about risk management, how to source ideas, all of that. And suddenly you'll find you've turned that information that we've been giving you into knowledge. And you'll find the notes that you're taking on the platform and our trade ideas based around what you've seen the information you know, how to size trades, entry levels, stop loss levels, take profit levels. You'll start to form these things in your platform and your notes will be there and they'll be your knowledge stored in one place. So every time you log into Real Vision, you've got your knowledge. And if you're missing knowledge, well, the AI can help you. Just ask it anything. How the hell do call options work? What does what overwriting a call mean? You know, how does any of this, whatever it is, insert your term. It will help you. You can just click them as notes, add to your knowledge library. Those knowledge libraries, people are starting to use on Real Vision, and it's going to come alive as we add new features. And that, I think, is really important. So this journey of education, really, if you're not a tier two uh, knowledge level member, which is the plus tier, you really should do it because it's going to get you away from the maelstrom of information into knowledge where there's more signal where your trades do better your financial future feels more secure as part of that we also interview pretty well-known people and ask them for their stories and we've got two forms of that in the plus tier one is called masterclass and it is exactly what you think it is it's a deep dive interview with one person on their career and it really is for you to sit there like i could with Paul Tudor Jones and learn. And there's tons of those in the library. So look at those. And then there's another series called My Life in Four Trades, which Maggie hosts, which is amazing. And My Life in Four Trades is all about learning from people's actual trades or the trades that they made in their lives. Some of them actually aren't even finance trades at all. They're about how to think, how to think about life. But also many of those conversations are about the failures too because they are trades too. We can't just celebrate victories because that's fucking nonsense. 
everybody has to fail repeatedly and learn from mistakes. So My Life in Four Trades is an amazing series in the plus tier of Real Vision. And I wanted to release my Four Life in Four Trades where Maggie interviews me because I think you're going to enjoy it. I think you're going to learn a lot from what I've learned from the people I've spent talking to in my career. Some of the greatest trades I saw some of these investors do and they're mind-blowing. How smart they are, how they put everything together. And there's also some tips on life as well. So settle in to Raoul Pal's My Life in Four Trades. And I think, hopefully, you too will be on that journey from info information to knowledge to wisdom. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Join me, Raoul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Hi, Raoul. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Nice. I can't wait for this, Maggie. Ah, oh, we finally got you. <laughs> um, so before we jump in, it's our tradition to learn a little bit about your background. So let's start there. Where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Uh, I grew up in England, um, outside of London, near Windsor, where the Queen lives. Um, and I... I had that kind of an idyllic upbringing. We lived in a small cul-de-sac of 10 houses. There was 15 kids our age amongst those houses. We played on bicycles. It was kind of in the middle of the countryside as well, in a small village. So I had a, you know, a perfect upbringing and then kind of uprooted and moved to India when I was 11 years old. It was a massive recession um, in 1980, something like that. And um, dad decided... My father's from India, that we'll try our luck and move there. We came back 18 months later, realizing that we were never going to fit in there either. <laughs> the grass isn't greener. So did that dis disrupt things or did you slide right back into that same cul-de-sac? It set that pattern of me being happy outside my comfort zone and also the experience of life itself as a journey and travel. It's in my blood. My father traveled to England when he was 19, 18, uh, and then traveled back to India overland with four people in a van. Ended up in prison in Turkey, then in <laughs> Iran because their visas ran out, all sorts of drama. And he wrote about it for, a, um, for an Indian newspaper. And so and my mum was a Dutch au pair and they met on a blind date in Birmingham. So travel, adventure, living outside my comfort zone has been kind of dear to my heart all the way through from being a kid. And maybe some early experiences with sort of overcoming failure because to sort of haul the whole family over and then 18 months go, oh, right, that didn't work out and, and head back. I mean, that has to have an impact on you. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Dad was an Indian kind of typically status driven. He's probably more scared of failure, but I saw a lot of failure around me. So I was I would keep an eye on failure and then make sure it didn't happen was something that I learned. Um, also, the other thing is like that group of 15 kids, they were all like captain of every single team, you know, swimming for the county, playing cricket for the county, playing football. And I was never able to compete with them. So I learned that the only person I could compete with was myself. So I, I, 
from a youth, I was never a competitive person with others around me, just with myself. That's really interesting. Wait, did you know that at the time or are you aware of that looking back now? Yeah, I, I, I knew I wasn't as good at, as them and accepted that. But I don't know, somehow it gave me the intrinsic motivation for kind of life itself that, yes, it is a team sport, but it's not really. In the end, the buck stops with you and you have to make your own success and luck, you know. And so, yeah, I don't know, but it's so badly ingrained in me that I can't even bear playing board games. Just can't stand it. Can't stand, don't play card games, none of it, because I don't like the competition. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Do you not like the competition or do you not like losing? Because those are two different things. Oh, I don't mind losing. Um, I just, I don't know. There's something about competition that doesn't, competition against other people, you know, particularly people that you're, you know, friends or those close around you, that I just, it doesn't motivate me. I don't mind the competition of myself against the markets or whatever it is, where it's kind of faceless and you're trying to figure it out and it's based on you. But yeah, I'm just not a competitive person, which is people find hard to believe, but I'm not. So was career in finance, a career in finance, something that was on your radar from a young age? So you don't want to compete with others, but you don't mind sort of there is a part of you that's competitive and wants to do well. So did you did you know about finance? Because it sounds like your dad or your family wasn't necessarily in the business. My dad was in marketing. So he was like European marketing director for Xerox. Um, he was in the copying machine industry, which at the time was the fast-growing, sexy tech industry. Um, and so he was in marketing, but I was a kid of the 80s, right? I grew up on my bicycle around the 80s and would see the rise of, you know, people with red braces and Porsches and champagne and the 80s thing happened, right? Oh, especially in the UK, right? Oh, yeah, really. It was huge in the UK. And you can't help but notice that this massive new wealth that accumulated the Thatcher, the Thatcher years. And so when I, I was interested in finance, I was reading about it because it felt like it was cool to me, uh, much like people might read about startup and entrepreneurial life now, you know, because you're, you're dreaming about what your future self is. But I also liked marketing, understood it. And it was actually after university, I did economics and law at university, but tried to do as much financy stuff as possible, but also was focusing on marketing 
And it was the only university that would accept me, by the way. So it wasn't like I went to the best university. I went to the only one that would take me. Um, and I, um, I was speaking to a friend of dad's, dad's birthday. And he said, Raoul, what are you, you going to do? And I graduated in 1990, which was a recession, which was a terrible year to graduate. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm interested in marketing. And I've been interviewing. I have actually, I've got at home, still got a hundred rejection letters from all the companies I wrote to, many of who I worked for later. But, you know, I was interviewing at like places like Gillette and I wanted to do marketing. Um, but And I couldn't get any interviews at banks, but that was the other thing. And I said to this guy, I said, you know, I'm thinking about marketing or finance. And he looked at me and said, really simple, Ral. because you can go and work for a great marketing company like Mars and they'll give you free Mars bars. Or you can go and work for a bank and they'll give you free money. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. It's like, yeah, it's the same job, right? You're doing basically sales and marketing. And so, but one pays a lot more. Um, and so that's how I ended up. I just, I'm a big believer in manifesting your own destiny. I kind of see it and then make it happen. And so I just made it happen. And I got there eventually, fought my way in. Went through circuitous routes, started in a company called Tellerate, which was like Bloomberg at the time. In fact, it was the number yes. two. Reuters was number one, Tellerate was number two. I got a job in the graduate training program there. Um, I then got promoted to a salesman really quickly um, and then and then um, focused on getting into a trading desk. And I went to a company called James Capel, which was a very kind of posh brokerage house that was part of HSBC in equity derivatives. And then my boss resigned six months later and I became the boss. <laughs> that was that. That's a shot right up. So what was your impression of that investment banking world? Because, you know, there was a certain sort of culture and a certain fitting in to that whole universe, um, both both here in the States and in the UK. It changed in my career. When I first started my career, the old boy network, the English class system was very prevalent. And it was a very posh firm. So there was a lot of very posh people who went to very posh schools. Um, and it was kind of gentlemen's club. So when you got promoted to a certain level, you get a club membership paid for by James Capel. It was it was that kind of firm. Um, and my impression of the dealing room was obviously overwhelming, but the, the adrenaline, you know, even when I look back now, it was like, you're like a battery hen. You know, there was all of these... <laughs> Very well-paid people with one meter by one meter above next to each other. It was chaos, loud, engaging, terrifying. And it was also a foreign language. So you'd sit there and I knew a bit about finance, but I was like, what the hell is going on? These things, prices moving on the screen. You couldn't really focus. What do they mean? Why were they going up and down? And then, you know, eventually I actually discovered charts and charts were my visual cue. You know, some people are very visually driven, and I'm very visual. So charts helped me with that. But as it, I progressed in my career, and I transitioned to NatWest, and then eventually to Goldman, it was a whole different world. It was, yes, there was a bit of background element, but then it was about how smart you were. Mm. And that was a very different environment. Um, much more competitive, much more uh, ruthless, fast paced, entrepreneurial, um, but also restrictive in different ways. Yeah. 
So at some point you switch from, you get in through sales and marketing. Were you, were you always in that, but watching trading, or did you actually switch to trading and managing money? No. So I, I did my whole career in investment banks as a salesman. So I rode the wave of derivatives and I was an equity derivative guy. So, you know, the S&P futures and all of that with the start, you know, stock options, index options, and then it grew. And, you know, I was one of the people who started the sector swap business in Europe. So, you know, we trade sectors in the US that didn't exist in Europe. And I and a couple of hedge funds got together and created a market for this stuff. And I rode this huge wave. And in the middle of that, I started discovering that I spoke the language of hedge funds and that was the area I focused on and I really liked it. So then I became the hedge fund guy in Europe. So I became the kind of European hedge fund guy. And again, I just manifested it. I just, that's what I wanted to be. And I was at NatWest and we just, I was the head of the desk and I was moving a whole team from James Capel because they had failed to pay us a bonus when we had a great year. And we're like, fuck that, we're off. So the team was moving across and just as we were about to start work, the new boss at the time said, big change here. Um, NatWest have just hired 120 people from Morgan Stanley, the equity derivatives team. And this was the world's best equity derivative team. They're coming to NatWest. Um, and I said, well, what does it mean for me? Because I have no idea what it means for any of us. But it's going to be a change because we're going to turn from being a British investment bank to an American one. And it's going to happen fast. Um, and my new boss at the time, a guy called James Goldsmith, um, who was pretty famous in the industry, has like, you know, he was the hedge fund guy. And I was already speaking to some hedge funds. I was, you know, built started building a hedge fund business, but I was more of a generalist in my client base. And Rick said to me, he said, listen, Raoul, your job of head of European um, equity derivatives doesn't exist anymore. I'm like, great. He said, what do you want to do? I said, hedge funds. He's like, fine, who do you want to meet? And I gave him the list of the 10 largest hedge funds in the world. He said, come over to New York next week. I'll introduce you to all of them. And that was Paul Tudor Jones, Lewis Bacon, um, long-term capital management, all of them, the whole lot. And I met them all. And that was the start of my career. Which brings us perfectly to the to the trades. But were you terrified meeting them? Because you sort of, no. I mean, you sort of- I've, just, never, lacked, yeah. I've never lacked confidence because I'm confident in myself. That doesn't mean I'm arrogant or in any way think that I'm something special. I just, from a very young age, my father used to hold parties or whatever, and me and my sister would serve drinks and nibbles, mm -hmm. and we would socialize with adults. So I was never scared of meeting people. And, you know, there were some pretty fancy people who come along to these things, and I would just treat them as equals and they would treat me as equals. And I learned that. And that was another trick before we get into the trade thing is I had a secret weapon. The secret weapon was my name, which nobody can really pronounce, including myself. And everyone pronounces it differently however they feel. So I would always just use my first name. So I would call up Paul Tudor Jones, get to his assistant or the, the person who ran the trading desk, say, can I speak to Paul? And they would say, who's speaking? And I'd say, it's Raoul. Sure, Raoul, hold on. But nobody else did that. It's like, oh, it's Bob Smith from Goldman. But there was only one Raoul. And so the moment that that assistant would call Paul or Stan or whoever it was, they would only use my first name. So they assumed we were friends. 
And those people felt I was a peer because they only knew me by, they didn't know me as Rob, Bob Smith from Goldman. They knew me as Raoul. It was, it was a genius piece of marketing. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners and then we'll be right back. So it's so interesting that you talk about all those legendary, your sort of, you know, sort of in, the inside seat you had to those legendary hedge funds, because um, we're actually going to do something a little different for your four trades. Um, for the best trades, we're going to talk about other people's trades that you saw that really had an impact on you or really like left you sort of impressed or after all these years stood out to you. So they're going to be other people's trades. But for your worst trades, we're going to do your trades. So you get to brag about other people, but share the pain of your own trades. But we thought that would be that would be fun because not many people have had the sort of access to these folks that you have. Okay, so we ready? We're ready. The first trade is one of the best, and that is a trade that was made during the Asian financial crisis, and it involved the South African RAND. So tell us about this. This is, 19, this is 1998. It was when I realized that the game that you see being played is not the game. And what you, what you realize is the world's best investors think two or three steps ahead at a speed and understanding that is breathtaking and it takes a while to learn to be anywhere remotely as good yeah it's so see that seeing around corners that that sort of certain people are able to do yeah and this trade every time i describe it to people everybody goes the oh my god really and i don't once you know it, it's so bloody obvious. So what's happening at this time? Like what's happening in global markets? Where are you? Are you at Goldman still? Are you? I was Goldman. I was a salesman. It was 1998. I don't know if Roger Hurst had yet joined. I don't think he joined me yet. So he came and joined me as, as my sidekick. Um, and we were wildly overworked. I couldn't go to the bathroom during the day. It was so busy. It was like chaotic markets. All of Asia was imploding. The European banks were imploding. The hedge funds were trading like crazy. You know, later long-term capital blow up. I mean, there this is- This is the Asian financial crisis, the beginning of the Asian financial yeah, so crisis, this is, right? This is 98. This is about 97, 98, 98, I think. So the single- and I would see the trades of Tiger Management, Julian Robertson, who sadly just died. I would see how they traded. I would see how Paul Shooter Jones traded. I would see how Stan Druckenmiller traded. And most of these guys, long-term capital management, all of them. But the guy who was the most aggressive was Lewis Bacon. Lewis Bacon of more capital management. And I knew his... I didn't know him that well, but I knew his team very well. They were my biggest client by a long way. And they were obviously very busy over the Asian financial crisis. It's like hedge fund heaven. Everything's going on. The economies are imploding. Currencies are collapsing. So there is. So what's going on at this time is Thailand devalues its currency, and that starts tipping the world into this rolling sovereign debt crisis across Asia. 
and currencies are collapsing, stock markets are collapsing, bond markets are blowing up and it's all happening. And the European banks are under stress because they've been lending money to Asia and we kind of know that whole game. And we're kind of midway through this and the hedge funds are starting to figure out what's next, right? Because there's always a daisy chain when it comes to leverage. What's next? Who's going to blow up next? And I remember looking at Stan's trades, Stan Druckermiller's trades, because I could see them all at Goldman. And what the I, flow, because you could see the flow they were putting I through. I could see the flow, right? I could see the positions in the, in, the, in the futures booking system. And I could see how he had layered on bets, starting with FX, but then equities, commodities, fixed income, I could see how he weighted his bets. It was fascinating to see. Obviously, you know, it was all private information, so you couldn't discuss it, but I could see how Stan's mind was and how he would bet in this very fast-moving dynamic market. And more capital, very aggressive, um, very... Uh, ama amazing, amazingly talented people. And Lewis Bacon is one of the most incredible people. And I get the phone call from the head of trading and in the market chaos. And they were always, he was always really aggressive, but he was a good friend as well. He's like, he calls me up and goes, Raoul, sell South Africa and puts the phone down. I'm like, what do you want to sell in South Africa? I'm an equity derivative desk. So it's not the currency. It's not a currency desk, in which case, you know. It's like, huh. So what do you want me to sell? And how much do you want me to sell? And at what price do you want me to sell? None of those three were there. So I call him back and I said, Chris, what do you want to do? He goes, just, I think his words were just fucking sell South Africa. And then he says, oh, stop. Just don't sell the futures contracts. Sell the stocks. I said, do you want it to even look like, do you want it to look at the index? He goes, I don't give a shit, Hungs up, hangs up. And then every 10 minutes, he'd be like, how much have you done? I'm like, it's South Africa. It's not very liquid. Just keep going. This went on for five days. Five days. We just- So sold. all South African equities, any equities that you could- Yeah, anything that was liquid, we sold it. So, <laughs> okay. The- South African stock market collapses. About a month later, six weeks later, the phone lights up again from more capital. Buy them back. You know, and it was the same messy process. And three, four days later, we finished it. And I work out the maths. I'm like, all of that mess of the market collapsing, you moving the price, all of these crazy orders, blah, 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 for 8%. And I'm like, you know, the position, I can't remember what, what it was, half a billion dollars or something, it was big. But it wasn't enough for more capital, who ran 10 billion plus, to really move the dial, considering that currencies were collapsing and all of this stuff was going on. So in a quiet moment, I called back the head of trading and said, what did Lewis just do there? Because that seemed like a complete waste of time and effort. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you've made 8% on that big, messy, multi-day thing. He goes, no, we didn't. We made 58%. It's one of the best trades we did all year. I'm like, 
What am I missing here? So then he goes on to explain the big trade in the Asian crisis was shorting the currencies because they're liquid and they were moving enormously. But the problem was the interest rate markets, they were raising interest rates to stop the speculators borrowing the currency. So if you have to borrow the currency, it's now 20% borrow costs, it's expensive and it was difficult to do. So across Asia, this game had been, if you were lucky enough to secure your funding, the borrow costs, you could do these trades. But if you were too late, they were becoming marginal because there was 20% cost of capital just to do it, maybe more. So South Africa had a really unusual situation. They had two currencies, the financial rand and the commercial rand. The commercial rand was fungible. You could trade it around the world. But interest rates on that, because everybody wants to short it, were like 20-something percent. Call it 27%. Crazy rates. As foreigners, we couldn't short the financial rand. I can't remember which way round it was. I think it was the financial rand we couldn't short. And so I'm like, okay, I understand what were you doing here? He goes, oh, it was pretty simple. He said, we realized that when you sh sh short stocks in South Africa, your borrowing costs were half a percent. And you got short the financial rand, which nobody else could short. And he said it fell 50%. Nobody else had figured this out. It was a way round funding that nobody else had figured out. And they'd seen it and acted super fast before anybody knew what was going on. And so what I thought the trade was, was shorting the stock market. But that was just one of the tools to get the actual position, which was the short currency market, which had fallen 50% and get around the issues of stock borrow, regulations between markets, all sorts of stuff. It was at that point I realized that the different people play a different level of game than I could. It's funny that you tell that story because we're now in a situation where we have a global crisis that's, you know, sort of unfolding, although we don't really know yet. It's not it's not rapidly things are not rapidly falling apart, but you have um, rising rates. You have you know, you have lots of people looking at different situations. You have policy diversions. Um, can can you do things like that now or was that particular to that time period? No, it just depends what it is. You know, you know, there's complexity. I don't know how the funding markets work, but somebody in the funding markets will be figuring out something to do. It's, but it wasn't the complexity of that, of knowing the plumbing. It was the speed of which they processed the opportunity and went for it before anybody even understood what was happening. So I saw it again from More Capital. Uh, this is not one of my best two trades, but it was, again, amazing. So in the UK... The 5G licenses were being issued and the UK decided to auction them. Sorry, 3G licenses. They decided to auction the 3G phone license. And what happens was there is a massive bid because everybody outcompetes themselves saying we must have this ability to have 3G. And I can't remember how much it was, but it was billions of dollars. And the moment that hit the tape, 
Lewis Bacon figured out this is going to bankrupt every single telco in Europe because every single country is going to do this. They're all going to extract as many, as much revenue as possible by auctioning off 3G licenses and everybody's going to go bust. Or bust, you know, they're going to come under severe financial stress. And that's when we started the sector swap business in Europe. The guy from the trading guest calls me up and goes, how the fuck do we short telcos in Europe? I'm like, well, there is an index, the Dow Jones um, um, index that's based on this stuff. He's like, well, is it tradable? I'm like, no. He said, well, you're going to have to figure it out. And he said, and I need to go and find a friend of yours who will make a market as well so I can get out of the trade without just relying on Goldman because I need to protect myself. I'm not going to get killed by you guys. So I called up. <laughs> Jason Gerd, a good friend of mine at Deutsche Bank, said, listen, Jason, we're going to start the sector business in Europe. This is the Dow Jones sector. This is the telco index. He's like, fine. So we start it. And again, within probably about an hour of figuring out that we can do it, and we said, we'll figure out the details, he had sold like a billion dollars of telcos before anybody even figured out what the hell was happening and made a fortune because he just... So fast to see the knock-on effects. It's like, oh, amazing auction. Wow, that was a lot of money. To, well, everybody's going to, every European country is going to do this. To, how are the telcos, the European telcos going to afford this? To, well, this is going to absolutely kill them. Amazing. So the guy was really good at doing that. Is really fast, assessing huge amounts of information and making the best expression of the view. So, you know, what lesson did you take away personally? How did you think about that as you, especially once you started, once you left Goldman and started managing money yourself and, you know, thinking about your macro framework? It was really about too many people do the obvious. And there's another group of people who overcomplicate. What you're trying to look is for that sweet spot between seeing something that nobody else is seeing yet but still giving yourself a high probability of success. I've seen this, my old boss at GLG, Noam Goddesman would say, when I would get a little bit carried away by doing some kind of weird option structure, he'd say, listen, Raoul, if you want to scratch your ear, you don't put your arm all the way around your head to scratch your ear, you just scratch your ear. So if you want to go long the euro, buy the euro. Why have you got the stupid structure? And it was the keep it simple, stupid idea that I see so many people still to this day do and I hear them on real vision, that's overcomplicating stuff. So there is a balance between being too simple, in which case it's too bloody obvious for everybody, or too complicated that the trade never works anyway. And I've, so many people have lost their entire careers doing that, particularly option guys. They're just, they always overthink everything. So it's that sweet spot between being fast, not overthinking it, but thinking it through further than most people do in a shorter period of time. Which is easy to easy to say that. It's so incredibly difficult to do. And when you see it done like that, it's awesome. It's just, you know, it's just like, it's like watching a grandmaster play chess and doing it really fast. It's like, wow, okay, do that again? That, that, yeah. that was magic. But it also, it, then you know it's possible. So you're like, oh, crap, if he can do it, like theoretically, we all should be able to do it. But it's just, it's so, so hard. So this next trade, the second trade, is one of your worst. It's one of yours. In 2009, 
you ignored your macro framework and you overrode it with emotion. So set the scene for us. Like what's happening in your career? What's happening in your, you know, in your life? Have you been successful trading at this point? I have basically retired from the hedge fund business. I didn't I didn't make the fortune that make the richest man in the world, but I'd done well from it. Um and my last year, I didn't do great, but, you know, we were up for awards for some of the years. So, you know, I had a decent shot, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't like managing money for other people, and I didn't like being forced into a shorter-term time horizon um, than, than what I thought macro should be. I think that macro should be higher volatility, longer time horizon, but the pension industry and the fund-to-fund industry was forcing people into shorter-term time horizons, less volatility. So it became about gathering assets and not about performance. I'm like, I could see where this is going. I want out. And I was dead right. I saw it in advance and got out the hedge fund industry as it slowly imploded its way through lack of performance. Um, so I was living in Spain, writing Global Macro Investor, which is my institutional research service. And I was, I had seen the financial crisis coming and had written about it and done extremely well and made money trading myself, made a lot of money for my clients, made a lot of money, made my whole reputation on that. A lot of the people from the big short were clients of mine. A lot of the most famous hedge fund people in the world became global macro investor clients back then and are still with me today. Um, And then it came, so I'd been using the business cycle framework, which is the ISM that people have seen me talk about on Real Vision using um, the business cycle to predict where asset prices go. Fine, got all that right, you know, cover most of the financial crisis, got it right. And then the markets have been imploding. So it's now kind of March, 2020, no, call, call it April, May. They've started bouncing from the low. And I'm thinking the financial system is going to completely go because that was the sentiment that we're going to go to the logical conclusion. I see people doing this now. The logical conclusion is the complete wipeout of the financial system. And whether that leads to a sovereign crisis, whatever it is, but it's the next step. It's the depression, right? That's in the back of everybody's mind is that 90% downside and the whole thing going. And this is this is around, this is after, you know, part of what was feeding into that, because this is after... We see Lehman go. I mean, it was like dominoes, like firms that had been around that had weathered all of that were just falling. I mean, it was it was a it was a crazy time. I mean, there were you're right that people thought it was the world was ending. I mean, it was not a joke. I mean, the wheels were coming off. You know, Hank Paulson is throwing up in the White House in his memoir, he tells us, because he's so freaked out by what's going on. Yeah, people don't understand that an entire system, the commercial system of which we live is based around finance and banking and the entire banking system become insolvent. And that was probably the pensions industry as well and anything to do with housing. And I mean, it had all stopped. And the terrifying thing is, if you're not careful, you go back to barter. It had happened in Argentina in 2004. We'd seen it. People knew. So... Somewhere in the back of my mind was, holy shit, this could be Argentina, 2004, where it went to barter. Or this is 1929, 1931, 1932, 1933, all over again, which means that 
even though the market's down 50%, it can go down another 50% and another 50%. Because what is the resolution? <clears throat> now, the resolution ended up being quantitative easing. None of us knew what that really meant. So I see the quantitative easing. I see the massive fiscal stimulus, the TARP policy, all of this stuff. And the markets start rallying. And you're used to short squeezes. So of course you think it's a short squeeze. My economic indicators had bottomed. They got as bad as they were going to get and they'd started to rise. But my emotion was telling me, this is not over yet. We're going to go to the logical conclusion. It's when you kind of impose your will on the markets and you see it, I see it now, I see it. I've seen it in different periods of time where people impose what they think it should be, not what it is. So I'm like, this is the comeuppance of the financial system. This is the big one. And it was a big one, right? It was catastrophic, but I thought it should be more. Down 50%, that's nothing. We need total wipeout here. This is what, you know, this is what we're going to get punished for the leverage that we've taken. And so my indicators were picking up to say the business cycle had bottomed. And I had constructed a narrative in my head that the business cycle would roll over again and create another new low. I had no evidence to support that. What it was was emotion telling me that's what I wanted. I just had a huge success of 2008. I was now feeling hubristic. I thought I was invincible. Of course I would nail this. And imagine the glory if I got it right again that the market rolls over and that it didn't mean revert. And then we went through decades of, of markets not going back to the highs. And if I called that, then I would be amazing, right? Every time I've done this, every time I've started to believe my shit smells of roses, I've had my nose rubbed in it. <laughs> um, I remember when I was at GLG, I remember the difficult conversation with Noam Goddesman, who's still a mentor and a very close friend of mine, um, about a pay rise, uh, being compensated for, you know, we'd had some good performance and I, I wanted to get a a percentage, a better percentage of the performance fees. So Noam very graciously agreed, uh, you know, we debated all this stuff and obviously I then had a terrible year afterwards. Of course. <laughs> and actually to be Noam, to be fair to Noam, he's like, I was like, no, I'm going to leave. And he said, I said, look, and I'm not going to get a bonus anyway, because I negotiated this. And I stand by that. If if I'm not making money, I should get paid. He's like, no, no, I'll pay you a bonus regardless because I want you around. I'm like, I can't do that because I'm not honoring my part of the deal. But thank you. That was the kind of guy he was. But so a hubris I've learned is when it creeps in, you start to, you, your spidey sense should go up. I completely got this wrong. So all of the work, all of the economic work that I taught myself how to look at the business cycle all said the probability is that the worst is behind us. My emotional side was screaming other things. Everybody around us was screaming other things. And so I didn't close out my short positions. Mm. I said, it'll be fine because it'll roll over again. And then I added. And, and I was recommending it as well. And there's a bunch of people. 2009 was a mixed year. You either got, you either did really well or you got absolutely nuked. And I got 
absolutely new. So I don't think I, I think, well, it was easily the worst year I'd ever had in the history of Global Macro Investor. Uh, easily the worst year I'd had personally. And a lot of clients got murdered by it as well. When you had such success with that bear call, is it easy to get sucked into that again? You know, that you're in that bearish framework and just hard to to make that pivot when it works so well? It's very hard and you you begin to self-identify. All macro people self-identify with their market, but their markets. Mm-hmm. Because generally speaking, if markets are a string of positive returns and negative returns, bull markets tend to take time. Bear markets happen super fast. So if you get it right, you make a lot of money very quickly. So macro guys love bear markets. We use leverage, we go for the kill, then you walk away. And the lesson everybody learns is the when do you walk away and when do you not? So the really good people, the Paul Tudor Joneses and the Lewis Bacons and the Stan Druckermillers, no, I remember writing to Paul, in fact, in 2001. And I wrote to Paul, I said, look, you know, I'm really bearish and blah, 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 blah. And it was like in the middle of the 2002, it was after 9-11. And he just said, yeah, I agree, Raoul. Just be careful. Don't outstay your bearish welcome. I remember the email really well. And he was warning me, obviously, that he could see that we were getting close to the reversal. Um... And I, I probably did, I, I certainly did overstay then. Wasn't the worst. Um, but in 2009, I just overstayed it. I just overstayed it because I wanted to be right as opposed to not realizing. And that's very different to being early or getting a trade wrong. These are very different things. This is the emotional overwriting of your macro framework. Sometimes... You can be like, I'm currently really quite wrong on bonds, but my macro framework tells me that this is the best risk reward position and this is what you should be doing. So it's not an emotional position. It's very different. Yeah. And and you can see all over Twitter that people are very emotionally tied to the narratives they have in their head uh, across a range of issues. What What is, how do you recover from something like that? So you went from being... The, the sort of best and most respected and suddenly you're just you're lo- you're losing money you're losing clients money how do you how do you bounce back from that first you need to get back to the point of intellectual honesty and that takes a while to get back to yeah screwed up and then then your head is not normally right so the first thing to do is try not to take a lot of risk and tr- just just calm down your thesis was wrong find a new thesis but don't force it because often you try and get the next big trade right and i've seen that kyle bass a bunch of these guys make a ton of money in one trade and try and force a narrative and it doesn't work because they want to be that guy so i i think 2010 was kind of okay um but i was gun shy 2011 i think was pretty decent and then 2012 was a great year because I got the European crisis uh, and I didn't overstay. So you build yourself back up. You build yourself back up cautiously. You can't help it. You're scarred and you feel unconfident. I mean, it's happening to me now. You know, you just feel like, fuck, I can't get anything right right now. And it makes you feel 
you know, just insecure generally about what you're doing. And the answer is, is to do your work, is to do the analysis, set yourself aside from your emotions and saying, today, what would I do? Would I put this trade on or not put this trade on? You know, okay, you've got the trade on. Do I, do I just stick with it? Because that over the time horizon, the risk reward still works or am I fooling myself? And it's quite, it takes a while to do all of that. Um, and it's pretty horrible. And I remember even in 2001, 2002, when I was at GLG running a big book, there'd be periods of time where it just didn't work and we'd been making money. And what we tend to do is just close everything out. Just close everything out and just stop. And so fine, look, let's just take a day out of the office, go and do something else, and then we can rebuild up. So the third trade is one of the best that you saw, and it's a hedge fund trader who bought euro dollar futures in January of 2001 and then went to his house in Mallorca to wait. So, so what, what is this about? So between this trade and that Lewis Bacon trade, this is really how to trade macro, right? These two are the best macro trades I've ever seen. Yeah, George Soros and the pound, but I wasn't involved in that. I was directly involved in, well, not directly involved in the second one, sort of, because I was doing the trade similarly. So there is a trader at Tudor, and I won't mention his name for privacy. And we get to hear by one of the salespeople, I'm at GLG now, and I am... So we get to hear of this story and it unfolds over the course of the year. So I think it was January the 2nd, uh, 2001, the Fed cut. The ISM had crossed 50, growth was weakening, and the markets had started pricing in cuts, but this was the first. So this is how macro people think again. This guy went, well, we're in the middle of a stock market bubble. We've got debt problems. They're going to have to cut a long way, and the Fed never cut once. So simple hypothesis, they never cut once. The market is only pricing in 75 basis points of cuts. Most likely they're gonna to have to go three or 400 basis points. So that little bit of understanding, he sees it's, it's on January the 2nd, I think it was January 2nd or, or December 28th, something, one of these kind of really illiquid times. He rushes into the office, beginning of a new trading year, goes limit long, Euro dollar futures for the end of the year. So Euro dollar futures are a bet on where interest rates will be over a period of time. And he's betting to December 2021. And many of us in the Euro dollar markets, we were super involved over that period because it was all about this rate trade, which made it very easy because rates tend to be less volatile, but tend to move a lot. So the risk rewards get very good and get a lot of leverage in these things. So anyway, so he goes limit long, and then he has the understanding. So first he's seen the path, right? This is the future path that I talked about before, the knock-on effects. Then he also understands his time horizon, which is what, how long does this take to play out? Well, a recession's usually kind of about a one year, 18 month process, and they're gonna have to keep going. The stock market already peaked at that point. So, so he realizes that okay, the best single bet in the world 
is to bet the rates are going to go down, not to short the equity market, which is the lazy trade. It was to bet the stock market goes down, uh, the, the, the bond yields go down. And euro dollars were the best expression, best leverage, best risk-adjusted return. So he figured all this out. Massive, irresponsibly long position in this. And he gets on a plane and goes back to where he came from, which was his holiday home in Mallorca in Spain. Because he had that much confidence. Well, normally you would be sweating and biting your fingernails because you've got record risk. It was the beginning of the year for him, so he had new risk limits, so that helped. And he went, and the trade starts working almost immediately for him. And he does nothing. And his, his colleagues at the office are like, you're coming back in. I mean, this wasn't work from home, right? You're working for one of the most famous hedge funds in the world. You're running a big book. It's not work from home, do what you want. They're like, you're coming into the office. He's like, no, what's the point? He goes, I've got one trade to do. The absolute clarity, there is only one trade to do, and I'm in my trade. He said, there's nothing I'm going to do. The Fed are going to cut several hundred basis points, and I'm going to clean up. So that's it. Okay, so he's now, he's, he's decently in profit very quickly because he saw the trade fast. And by about June, he's really up. You know, he's now got the most profitable trade of anybody at Tudor. And euro dollars back up 75 basis points as the market starts saying, oh, is this over? Is the worst over? Are the Fed not going to cut anymore? Right? These narrative shifts you get a lot. And the you know, stock market's bouncing, blah, 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 blah. And he gets the phone call, the big phone call, the Paul Tudor Jones phone call. And Paul's like, I'm in London and I'd like you to come in and talk to me. So he gets on the plane, flies to London, goes to see Paul and um, Mark Hortonberry, um, who runs the London office and a bunch of others. And they call him in and they're like, okay, well, you had the biggest PL so far this year. You've got huge risk on. You've just given a whole ton back. What do you want to do? Because your PL is, you know, your end of year bonus here is going out the window and it's only June. <laughs> and he looked at them and said, I need to double up. And they went, Paul went, fine. You know what you're doing? You know your risk limit? I'll, I'll double your risk limit. Um, but you're playing with your own bonus here. And, you know, if you get back to flat, you're out. Whatever it was. And so he gets back on the plane and goes back to Mallorca. So he's traded once beginning of the year he's then doubled the entire position size and he's gone back on a plane he does not trade a single other instrument this is a hedge fund guy he's normally trading just doesn't do anything the one pure trade and then he it's about november and the trade has played out extremely well and he gets back on a plane closes the trade, takes his profit. Again, before he's kind of, before it's reached to its end, it, it actually goes further because 2002, things go further. Um, he could have just kept the trade on, but he didn't. He took his money off the table. He then quit his job and retired. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that is pretty epic. And I wrote about this on 
Twitter, and it became the basis of the buy bonds where diamonds trade in 2019. Because that was a situation where I know, knew the Fed had over-tightened. We knew that the economy was weakening. We didn't know about the pandemic. And therefore, the trade would be the moment they cut was to buy bonds. And they, they started backing away in 2000, the, the pivot in 2018. So there was the trade setup. Buy bonds, wear diamonds, or buy bonds and go to the beach. It then plays out a second time because that's playing out. But then we get to this period where the economy is kind of stabilized a bit. The ISM's bouncing. And we're kind of in this no man's land in 2019. And a lot of people are getting frustrated with the bond position. Some people have closed it out. And I'm like, you know, really, if it's right, it should continue lower because the economic forward-looking data is still weak and it should be going down. So again, I'm not trading with my emotion here. I'm using my stuff. And then I see the pandemic. I see it in 2000, in 2020, January, and I figure out immediately what it meant just by chance. And I just remember the moment it went to Italy, I just wrote a note to Global Macro Investor, which is was titled Panic. And you just knew what had to happen is there is no way we were going to get through this without massively cutting rates. Um, and, and that was all the extension of the learning of this one trade is how to take the purest expression of the view when you know that the probability is so far in your favor that you have to be greedy. So do you think that this is about skill or luck? Both. The skill is knowing, and George Soros writes about this, Stan Druckermiller, they all talk about it, is knowing when to be greedy. You won't get it right every time. But when you get it right and you're in the groove, Paul is one of these people, Jones is... He knows when he's trading well, and he'll back himself. George Soros, the alchemy of finance, talks about this a lot. You back yourself when you know you, you've you got it. You're, you're, you're feeling it. Um, your trades are working. You're with the flow of the market. Um, that ability to choose that moment, a lot of people chase that moment their entire careers because they mm -hmm. get it once and they want to do it again. And I... Yeah, that was kind of 2009 for me a bit. You you have to be really careful because they're super alluring when you get it right. It It is the greatest feeling in finance when you get that moment in time where clarity comes, you see it, and you are really greedy with the opportunity. Um, but God chasing that thing, if, you, if you're not careful, you'll go bankrupt doing that. I think Sergio... Uh, Silva, we were talking about a different asset market, but I think he said um, being prepared for when luck comes your way. So the skill is being prepared and ready, and then you can sort of know what to do or optimize that when luck when luck strikes. See, I, I don't think there's a lot of... There is luck, but generally with a, something like that, there's not a lot of luck because that was preparation, understanding, homework assessing what is the best risk to take and everything else. The luck is usually the speed at which it happens. Mm. Like a pandemic hits and then... Yeah, because that allows you to stay with the risk. If that guy had come in from Tudor 
and the whole thing had moved 50 basis points against him. He would have been stopped out and he would never have done the trade. So the luck was the speed of the initial move because then any retracement never took him to a negative P&L so he could handle it. You know, the luck in this kind of situation is that. Your last trade is one of yours and it is, it's one of your worst and it's probably, well, it's Bitcoin trade back in 2013 to, to present, I guess. I don't know. I was going to say currently, although I think you're, you're more ETH than anything else, but why, why does this count up as one of your worst? So we talked about trade construction. We talked a bit about time horizon. We've talked about when to be greedy, all of these things. And this is a story of me learning other things as well and trying to put it all together, doing the right thing and still getting it wrong. So let me try and explain what I mean. So after the European financial crisis, the sovereign crisis in 2012, and most people have heard the story that, you know, this is out of this became the, the reason we started Real Vision because mm -hmm. people got destroyed by it. But I also wanted to start the world's safest bank because I knew that we didn't own any assets. Cyprus had taken all the money out of the banking system. You know, it was a terrifying time and I knew that debt burdens hadn't gone away. So that's when I got introduced by a good friend of mine, Emil Woods, uh, another, um, I think he's ex-Goldman who... Um, ran a large hedge fund in New York, and he's like, you need to look at Bitcoin. Forget the bank. Here's something interesting. And so 2012, I first look at Bitcoin properly. I write the first macroeconomic strategy paper on Bitcoin in about, I think it was March 20, uh, was it, yeah, March 2012, uh, 2013. And I do the analysis and say, well, if it's like gold, then we know kind of how much gold's above ground and we know how much gold is probably below ground. We have an idea that's called a stock to flow. And I could probably back that out in Bitcoin to give us an idea of what this bloody thing's worth. Because we know it's interesting, but we don't know what it's worth. So the macro guys were interested, but didn't know. And it already done a decent you know, cycle already, but performed extremely well. So it was interesting. And so... At the time, Bitcoin was at $200, and I thought the maths worked out that it was worth a million dollars. That's with the equivalent of gold at around 1300 which is not a million miles from now, right? Gold's actually gone nowhere over that period of time. So it's worth a million dollars, and it's at $200. So learning the lessons of hubris, I'm just like, I'm just going to discount myself by 90%. And I like to do this periodically, is... I just said, well, I think it's worth a million. Let's let's rate the Raoul is an idiot factor by 90%. We'll turn up the idiot dial 90%. It's still worth 100,000. So that's the best risk reward I'd ever seen in my entire career and any of us had ever seen. So I'm like, well, we've got to buy this, right? It could go to zero, but it's an option. So uh, I probably got quite a few people in it. That article became famous, got circulated around Silicon Valley because nobody looked at macro, um, Bitcoin in a macro way before. So I buy it and my thesis, my time horizon is, so I've done my homework. I'm now onto the time horizon. The time horizon is, well, this is probably at least a five-year bet, probably longer. And I should just close my eyes and see where it ends up. 
because it ain't going to a million dollars overnight or a hundred thousand dollars overnight. So it goes up five X in, it goes up a hundred percent in, in a week after two weeks after buying it. I'm like, shit, what the hell's this? It then goes up five X from where I bought it. And I'm like, clearly I'm just George Soros. I'm just a God, you know, I can't get it. You know, I'm just so amazing. I, you know, no, I wasn't that hubristic about it, but I was like, wow, okay. This is something I've never seen before. It then falls 85%, but it goes back to 200. So, okay. I've never lost money in it. Never lost a penny. In fact, I've never lost a penny earning Bitcoin at all. And I just forget about it. I've opened an account at an exchange called ItBit, which is now Paxos, which was owned by Emil Woods and Chad Cascarilla. They built this exchange in Singapore and I kept it there and I forgot about it. I didn't even know the password. I just, you know, and I keep my eye on the Bitcoin price because I was interested. We launched Real Vision 2014. It's in the first ever video on Real Vision. In fact, in that little Genesis video that I shared recently, there's the Bitcoin logo, right? So yeah. I knew where this was going is the macro crypto, we're going to meet in the next recession. And I've made that clear and tried to bring as many people on the journey as possible. I don't trade it at all. 2017, I'm now quite involved because it's, it's spilled onto Real Vision. There's a lot of emotion going on. People are really involved. I'm, um, I still own it. I'm kind of quite vocal on Twitter starting to talk about this and it's now about two, two and a half thousand dollars. So I'm now up 10 X. So 10 X, that's a great bloody trade. You don't get those many in your lifetime. And so I start thinking, actually, that's quite a lot of money now. And I'd also, um, just got divorced and I needed to pay my ex-wife half of that. <laughs> and the forking wars happen. So this is when they, they replicate the Bitcoin chain and create a new one that has some different attributes. And I didn't understand this stuff. And so when you don't understand it, you should close it. Now I shouldn't have because my thesis was longer term and that I should let it play out, but it becomes really hard when you're up a lot of money and you owe half it to your ex-wife. It's become very hard <laughs> is when you then sit, go back down, right? Um, and it's, it's hard to do if the forking wars had been a thing and it meant that the Bitcoin chain failed and everyone was on Bitcoin cash or whatever it was going. So I take profits. I don't think anything of it. I'm like, great. It was a great trade. It goes up another 10 X goes to 20,000. And I am observing it. I had no feelings. People were like, you're an idiot on Twitter. Look at you. You're an idiot. I have no real emotions either way. I'm like, I've done fine. Happy with it. Let's see where this goes. And then, you know, I do a few pieces on Real Vision around December, about December 20, um, 2017, saying, look, I think it's a bubble. I spoke at the consensus conference the day before the bubble popped, saying, look, I think it's a bubble. Fine. So, you know, I'm feeling quite good about myself. I bought it. I kind of got the top pretty much right in terms of telling people I sold that too early. Fine. All well and good. I then 
observe it. We have like Bitcoin week on Real Vision. I'm seeing what's going on. There's nothing really happening. It keeps falling. So it's 2018, 2019 keeps falling. But Dan Tapiero, who hadn't been in Bitcoin beforehand and was a long-term global macro investor subscriber, an old friend of mine, kept pestering me uh, about Bitcoin. And Dan's an amazing thinker. Um, he's really one of my really trusted go-to macro people. And he kept pestering me on Bitcoin. I'm like, yeah, I'm just not interested yet because the price was falling and I, could, I didn't have anything to base an investment off. And we had no real thesis yet. Yes, the economy was slow, but there was no real understanding what was going to drive this. And anyway, I eventually get him on Real Vision because I'm like, the only way to shut you up is to interview you publicly <laughs> on Real Vision. So we have a, an amazing conversation. He completely opened my mind to things that I had not understood about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency overall. And my thesis was that the next recession, Bitcoin's going to be something. So I've been watching the price like a hawk and it had been wedging slowly in this triangle formation. And what I really love to see and that reminds me, you know, several times in the past I've traded it, is something that comes up, forms this wedge, and it kind of touches it once, down to the bottom once, up to the top once, down to the bottom once. It kind of goes up to the top once, and then it pulls back into the middle of the range and then explodes higher. This little flag pattern is a really great pattern, and I was expecting this to be happening. And so March 2020... There it goes. It plummets right from that wedge, top of the wedge, straight into the middle of the range. I'm like, I have to buy it. And so I put in all available cash. Yeah, I had some other positions at the time. I had Euro dollar futures and I had some other stuff, gold and other stuff. But anyway, I bought it. I made a big thing of it. And that was at around six and a half thousand. And it explodes higher and it goes up to 68,000 and back down to where it is now. And I switched into ETH and made, you know, that was a great call because it made a lot more money from it. And this bet in March was the was by far bigger than my original bet. Massively bigger. So like I just put everything in. You know, irresponsibly long. Yeah, that's where the t-shirt comes from, right? That's right. And so I'm like, okay, so I bought it really cheap. I sold it 10x. I then bought it again, but at a much higher price than I sold it. Because I sold it at two and a half thousand and I bought it at six and a half thousand and maybe a bit up as well as it broke through 10,000. And now it's at 20,000. Okay. I thought nothing of that. I thought, yeah, I've done well. I'm a, look at me. I'm a good macro guy. I traded it, did all right, made money out of it. Not that many people have done well out of crypto like that. And then I went out, back and did the maths. And it only happened to me recently after I set up the um, exponential age, the digital asset. Um, asset management business I th and I was writing for Macro Insiders as well for uh, Real Vision Pro I thought I want to know how I actually did compared to if I just held on to my original thesis so I went back and looked and I remember how much money I put into Bitcoin to start with and it was a decent amount it was a decent bet and but not massive massive but you know it was quite a big bet for me and if I'd have just held that bloody position and not done anything, not any of the cute, I'm a macro hero, look at me, I can be Stan Druckenmiller, I would have made five times as much money. Mm. But 
And here's the big learning is I hadn't understood exponential trends, logarithmic trends, and adoption, Metcalfe's law, all of these things that subsequently came to me. And that tells you if a technology is about to be adopted at scale, then it doesn't revert back to the mean, it reverts back to this logarithmic channel, the bottom of that. And so you should buy, unless something completely changes your trade thesis, you should just buy the bottom of the channel when it gets oversold. So I figured out if I just added the same amount every time as my original bet in the couple of times that it got to the bottom of the channel, I'd make 25 times my money. Oof. But that's, a, that's, that's having to learn, right? That's a little bit different because of the nature of this, the or is it the technology and the nature of this newer asset than what you would have your prior experience had led no, you to? No, because we should have done it with the NASDAQ as well and we didn't do it. We should have done it with right. Amazon, we didn't do it. None of us did because we're all mean reversionists because we think boom equals bust and it does not in technology. Even when you go back and the, the tech crash of 2001 that so many people still think about on Twitter, CC technology, it's a bubble. Go back and look at the chart on NASDAQ. It was just noise. It was noise and adoption trend of the internet that happened. So it's so interesting because you say this and you, you know, look at your charts and you're sort of applying this sort of intellectual framework to this. And yet, you know that there is such tribalism around this conversation, and you have a massive public following now, and people get really heated about this. I mean, for every person who says, yes, that makes sense to me, there's somebody who's attacking you for shilling shitcoins. So how do you how do you deal with that when, in your mind, you're just operating on and, and kind of fine-tuning the framework that you've always used? It's been really interesting. It's the... <clears throat> Outside of crypto, which is fine, it's kind of tribal, but this whole exponential age thesis, which is saying, okay, I cannot see a world in which this probabilistically does not play out. There is no way, and I've just done an interview with a good friend of mine, Emad Mostak, on, um, um, about artificial intelligence. There is no way that this is not happening faster at a bigger scale than anything you've ever seen in your life before. And that's the same with robotics. That is the same with space travel. That is the same with the internet of things. That's the same with genetic sciences. It's the same with blockchain technology. I mean, these things are happening. They're not going to stop. There's nothing that will or can stop them. Not, oh, the Fed raised interest rates or, oh, you know, Oh, the, 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 the natural rate of interest rate's going to be higher at 4%. It's not going to stop. And these things are exponential. These things are doubling, quadrupling every year. And so I'm trying to get people to understand that I understand that you might fear it. I understand that you know of the world in terms of the things that you know. You know, the Federal Reserve bad. Um, oil, good. Markets go up and down. Boom equals bust, right? These things are so put into us that money printing equals inflation. Narratives, that most of these are narratives. And I'm like, okay, you can either 
invest like the gold guys for a long time said the great inflation is coming and they bought gold and they said quantitative easing debasement of currency gold and they're going to confiscate your assets gold all of those things have happened and gold is still nowhere in real terms in fact it's negative in fact gold mining stocks that have been every newsletter's tip for the last 40 years are all-time record lows in inflation adjusted terms so but people have this belief and i'm i don't want people to miss an opportunity because we can fear change or we can use it to help ourselves you may fear ai christ i do but what am i going to do am i going to own gold or do i just buy ai you know this is a mindset that you have to go through so that you have to have that big picture but this is where you can't get we know not every company will make it right like this is where it gets tricky because you can you can believe in the trend but we know from the dot-com bus some of them didn't get through although now a company that pretty much does what they did they're just timing wasn't right or their revenue didn't come quick enough so that you can you you can get you can believe the bigger narrative but you have to get be careful okay so what was the right answer is the answer i learned from crypto investment you buy the massive sell-off so i bought a whole basket of this exponential age stuff not of the highs when i started talking about it but after it was down 70 percent because i kind of have a rule of thumb anything down 70 percent or more that is not going bust you should own particularly if it's part of a secular theme so the trade's still not up. I think overall it's down about 15%. But, you know, I'm like down 30, don't really care because probably it's going to be up 10x. So, you know, it's the risk-adjusted reward is what you're looking for. You know, down down 30%, up 10 times, you'll take that risk reward all day. Even if I'm wrong, let's discount me. Let's discount me by 50%, it's up five times. Okay, that's still an amazing bet. Three times, it's still a 10x. So that's how I look at these things. And I just, what I did was spread across a basket of different stuff. So even though I talk about ARC, people think I just own ARC. ARC is one of the positions that I have. I have a whole bunch of ETFs on robotics and all sorts of stuff, plus some single stocks like Reliance in India and a whole bunch of stuff to spread that risk out a bunch of names because of the point being, as you say, we don't really know. But I know probability is better if I buy the sell-off. That was the Bitcoin lesson. Also, as you say, we don't quite, we know the direction of travel, but we don't know which ones are going to travel there. So let's get some diversification. You set your time horizon, which is okay. This is probably a five or 10 year bet and it's going to be volatile. Okay, so th those are the parameters. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and that all comes from the learning of stuff like what happened in Bitcoin, how to express the trade from the guy in Mallorca who's like, you see the trade is the best risk reward. Like I've always said, crypto has been the, is and will remain the best risk reward. But for equities, these are interesting too. And I just think it's intellectually important to participate in something so disruptive that even if it may not make as much money as you might make in crypto overall, I think it's just really important to be involved.
because if not, you will. My, I can see on Twitter, you'll drive yourself mad by rejecting it. Like I remember Amazon, and I've talked about this bit path. I, Amazon bookseller, great. Amazon Kindle, great. Love this, right? Now it's worth more than every other bookseller in the world added together. This is stupid. This is insanity. Uh, uh, trading at a P of 800. This is ridiculous. I'm a macro guy. This is the most ridiculous thing. I want to short it, short it, short. Keeps going up. It's like Tesla. People have just gone through this whole experience with Tesla. It's like, because it wasn't a fucking bookseller. It was a network. Right. And once you understood it, wouldn't have made the mistakes. And it's it's that clarity. Once you get the trade, you stick with it, get the time horizon, get the trade expression, and that's it. So last question. Do you think your best trade is still ahead of you? My best trade is always the same. It's in quality of life. And that quality of life is everything from friends, family, how you live, not where you live, not your material possessions. It's how you live your life. Having a, a lust for life, a curiosity, enjoying being outside of your comfort zone. I've talked about this before. There's your comfort zone and there's where the magic happens and they don't overlap. It's, it's that experience of life itself is the best trade. And the game is to accumulate as much quality of life. And that can be a walk in nature or it can be, it doesn't have to be anything. It's not material. It's a quality of life. And if you've got that and your bank is full, your bank, your account is full of quality of life and quality of life experiences, that's the greatest trade on earth. And I'll continue to do that trade until the day I die. That's fantastic advice. Ralph, thank you so much for being on. Not at all. It was a lot of fun. I hope I didn't bore people. So as you can tell, I've been super lucky to have a front row seat of pretty much everything that's happened in macro in its glory days and learned from the best by seeing them operate and be able to ask questions. And these people are incredible. I mean, they're just truly amazing people. But also, I'm very honest with myself that I can get it terribly wrong too. I can get it really right. And, you know, Global Macro Investor probably has, well, no, definitely has the best recorded track record of any research service as far as I can tell in history. It's been going for 19 years. But I've had some stinkers as well. I've really got it wrong because that's part of the game. Sure, we all get trades wrong, but I've, I've fucked the whole thing up before. And so that's what I wanted to show you in that. And then how to think about life itself. I think all of this is all part of the learning journey. If you are interested in the learning journey, obviously, Real Vision Plus is an absolute bargain with a full academy course that teaches you how to become an investor. That course was developed with myself and a guy called Lex Van Dam. Lex actually built the course. Lex, some of you may have heard of him. He made the, the BBC show Million Dollar Traders, and Lex and I um, appeared in that. Actually, I was a lot behind the scenes developing the course. This course became Lex's Million Dollar Traders. Um, and his whole famous five steps to trading. Real Vision bought the course and developed it into the Real Vision Academy. So Lex was head of prop trading at Goldman Sachs. When I was running hedge fund sales, he'd sit opposite me um, uh, trading for Goldman's own account in equities and equity derivatives. 
Then um, we both went to GLG Partners, the hedge fund giant in Europe. He ran the European Equity Fund, and I started and ran the Global Macro Fund. So we sat each other, known each other forever. He developed this course, and eventually we bought it and turned it into a course to help you guys. Because most courses sold by anybody are all just nobody's pretending they know. But Lex's golden prop trader plus GLG running a very large hedge fund, and he now runs a family office. So he's been in the game as long as I have. Um, so that course is this now. And that course is just part of the Plus membership, plus the masterclasses, my laughing for trades and AMAs with anybody. So make sure you do check out Real Vision Plus if you're not a member already. If you are, make sure you use the course. Everybody should be re re revisiting that course, freshening up, going through the masterclasses, taking notes. I can't stress the power of taking notes. When I was at GLG just starting uh, as, a, as a hedge fund manager, coming, having been a salesman, an investor came in to see me and said, look, Raoul, we know you understand macro and blah, 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 but you've not been a manager before, portfolio manager. So let me give you one piece of advice. And the one piece of advice he said was, okay, you come up with an idea, write it down. Write down your trade thesis, your entry level, where you'd stop out, what kind of risk reward, i.e. what profit versus the cost. So let's say you're risking 1% of your portfolio, you're aiming to make 5%. Okay, so you've got a risk reward, you've got a thesis, and then where you could be wrong. And then monitor that to hold yourself accountable. And he said that doing that process alone will dramatically change your trading. And I can't agree more. So even if you are a Real Vision uh, free member or essential member, the notes are there for you. They're a superpower. Use them, share them, help other people. All of that functionality is coming out in the next few weeks. So enjoy it. And I promise you, it'll change how you invest. And it will definitely help you unfuck the future. All of us together are living through the death of an old world and the birth of a new one. This is a fourth turning, but this is not the fourth turning of demographics or politics. This is the birth of the new technological age. This new world has a world of 3D printed rockets, crypto payments in space, discussions on the rights for humanoid robots, machine intelligence that may outperform our own, simulated worlds where autonomous AI agents write code for other autonomous AI agents. It's a world full of opportunity and full of difficulty too. You see, we are living history and it's happening much, much faster than any of us can comprehend. This is Reed's Law, Metcalfe's Law Squared. Humanity has never gone through anything like this. But we have to comprehend and understand what is happening. It is into this world that The Exponentialist is born. The Exponentialist is a new service from me, Raoul Powell, and David Mattin, author of New World, Same Humans. It's an almanac of the fastest period of change ever witnessed in the human history a period of excitement, exhilaration, difficulty, and terror. And The Exponentialist really is for humans first and investors second. Yes, the opportunities are enormous all round. To find out more and get our special launch pricing, go to realvision.com forward slash the future.